when I was a child, I found a camera, you know, with the 35mm um, film in it, next to the window ledge, and we had snow at the time, and the sky was uh, pink with the evening light, and I took a photo on that, and then I took another one, and another one after that, and I probably never confessed to being the person to have taken those photos, but I'm uh, just standing by my window, looking out and seeing how the sky is turning from uh, from bright to orange to pink. Uh, actually, it's the lights fading, but uh, it <laughs> it reminds me of that time. Well. Today we're looking at uh, Philippians chapter 2 and verse 14 to 18. And this somewhat finishes the, uh, the pep talk that Paul is giving to the Philippians. Remember, he's not writing to them because he's concerned that they're falling into sin or there's anything bad really happening to them. In fact, he's rather pleased with them and rather grateful for this uh, fellowship he has with them. But um, but he has carefully crafted a greeting, an example, and now uh, he leaves a, a sort of a, a final command ringing in their ears. And oh, in an old style of writing, he takes one sentence and he adds clause after clause to it. Um, if you like language. That's a way of writing um, which maintains a thought uh, and builds on it just using long sentences. Anyway, there, there you go. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation, and then you'll shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I'll be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain, but even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Now, I think it's interesting to follow a thought here that when Paul writes to the Church of Christ, to the saints in Philippi, to believers, to fellow uh, workers on the way, uh, to disciples, when he writes to this church in Philippi, now Paul is a Hebrew, and though he's grown up in, uh, or was born in Asia Minor, he grew up in uh, in Jerusalem, studying in that uh, great university of theology there, of Jewish theology. It's interesting that this Hebrew Paul, this Hebrew convert, is writing to Gentiles. And he can't help but frame things in a way that both Jews and Gentiles might appreciate. And if you don't mind following a thought with me for a while, 
you might see that there's some accuracy in, in this. So, he starts off, do everything without grumbling or arguing. The children of Israel come out of uh, Egypt in the Exodus. And what's the first thing they do? They start grumbling. They start looking back. They start saying, well, we had leeks and, uh, and onions in Egypt. At least we had homes to live in. And we weren't just eating this same thing all the time. We didn't live with the uncertainty that we do now. They began to grumble. Paul says, don't grumble. And they began to argue with one another, arguing about the best place to, to be, uh, arguing, just arguing, neighbour with neighbour. And so as they look back and they lick their lips thinking of Egypt and they're arguing, Moses has to, uh, has to appoint extra judges to, uh, to um, rule in their petty arguments and squabbles. The arguments really that neighbours often have and that often tear a street apart. Well, do everything without grumbling or arguing. So don't be like the children of Israel as they came out of Egypt so that you may become blameless and pure. Children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. The idea of blamelessness and purity to the people of Israel was in many ways one on the outside. To be pure was to be spotless. So uh, remember that when bringing a sacrifice, the lamb had to be a spotless lamb without blemish. Or when living in a house, if there was a blemish in the house, it could be that that was uh, a mouldiness, or it could be that it was a type of uh, house leprosy, and of course it, it, it destroyed the purity of the, the place to live in, and it had to be burnt down. So uh, to be pure to the Jew was to be one external, to be so externally, and of course this fed into the idea that everything that went into the Jewish person had to be cleansed and purified and, and so on. But Jesus brought a different way, didn't he? He said it's what comes out of a person that sullies them, that dirties them, uh, that makes them impure. And Paul says that is the model. That's the greater purity, the purity from inside. So what about blameless? Well, in the midst of a warped and crooked generation, or in one version, a twisted uh, generation, the people of Israel failed time and time again. They weren't blameless. They coveted the property and the gods and the stability and the kings of their neighbours, and often they stole them. Uh, they were not blameless. And you know, there are times in the desert where uh, this group of people, this ragtag 12 tribes of, of, of people, as they move through the desert, they collect things that they shouldn't. And, uh, and often they are uh, punished for it. There is also that blamefulness 
of trying to do what God didn't ask them to do as well, a golden calf or uh, incense that shouldn't be burnt because it's not burnt in a pure way. And, uh, and God punishes them for it because they are to be blamed. They're not blameless. So uh, this people, this Exodus people, well, they fail along the way. And Paul says, don't fail along the way. Um, then you'll shine like stars. Of course, the temple or the tabernacle that, uh, that Moses constructed or the people constructed under the instruction of Moses by the will of God, the tabernacle had this second chamber to it which um, contained a depiction of the holy of holies and the and the heavenly beings the cosmos that the world that god had created and and in it lampstands well this was transferred to the temple later on and we have in this a sense that uh, Paul wants the, the Paul wants the Philippians to shine like those lampstands. In other words, they're lights that are elevated like stars in the sky. Of course, the stars are shining down um, in in the darkness. Jesus himself talked, didn't he, about um, about being like a city on a hill. It can't be hidden. That the light is somehow elevated and that this disperses the light in the darkness and the people of israel were given that as a very uh, limited picture in in the sense that the tabernacle for all its glory and all its worth and all its holiness the tabernacle was a small confined space in actual fact paul is saying that the people of God, well, they're a much shinier group of people. They are able to shed light in a dark place, in a crooked generation. So, are you seeing that there is very much a parallel between what Paul is saying that the Philippians should do and what the people of Israel did? And as you firmly hold to the word of life, and here we remember that God often spoke out of the cloud, often brought light with him when he spoke. His word was that all-powerful, uh, the, the voice of many waters, and the people have a strange reaction to it because actually they try to get away from God when he's speaking. But Paul says that you'll be holding on to the word of life. And in Deuteronomy we read that uh, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so that, I, that, that word is a word of life, but it's a powerful word. Now, Paul says, cling on to it. And in this picture, we have a sense that the word is like a granite cliff. 
Yes, it might be lofty. Yes, it might be uh, difficult to mount. Nonetheless, the handholds in it are sure and certain. And so there is, uh, th there is a chance to hold firmly to the word of life. And we, we know that it's not an oversimplification to say that when the church, when the people of God live by the word of God, uh, he truly does bring life and, uh, and, and, and he brings strength as well to his people through keeping his word, holding on to it, that word of life. Um, and then I'll be able to boast in the day of Christ that I didn't run or labor in vain, says Paul. Well, that boasting, this was, uh, this was writ large on the, on the priest's clothing. Holy to the Lord. The twelve tribes displayed there in bejeweled breastplates to show off God's sense of accomplishment with who he had brought through this exodus and into the promised land. In vain, of course, would be no result. But, um, but, uh, but Paul's saying, show me that I didn't boast in vain. And here he is, that happy father who talks about his children and who shows off about them mostly because they're, they're, they're righteous, because they've, they've come out well, uh, they've done very well. And then Paul takes an image, and I want to suggest here that although Paul's thinking is very Hebrew, and, he, and the, the map of his mind is very much the map of uh, that Hebraic covenant people, uh, that saved people out of the wilderness, uh, out into the wilderness and on to the promised land people. Although he uses an awful lot of imagery from the Hebraic people, I think this is where he crisscrosses with the society that he's writing into because if I'm being poured out like a drink offering, on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith. We could easily be mistaken for thinking that this is this drink offering that is to be offered in Numbers 28, where Moses, uh, speaking to Joshua, tells him how to how many hins of wine per uh, per quarter of lamb and, 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 and all of this. Now, the drink offering was a daily offering and it was to be poured out as a as part of the burnt offering actually on in, in the um, inner sanctuary in the tabernacle um, at the time of Moses but here this is a different thing if I'm being poured out like a drink offering says Paul this is not a daily thing this is that same drink offering that David talks about now David uh, he was uh, in the midst of his enemies. He said, well, anyone, you know, I'm dying of thirst. His men risk their lives to bring him water. And when they bring him water, instead of drinking it, he says, I'm not worthy of this water. And he pours it all out. 
it becomes a drink offering. And there is that sense in sacrifice that it is both costly and wasteful, like the woman who is um, who, who rushes into Jesus and she pours that costly perfume on his feet. It, once, it's, once the bottle's broken, the perfume is gone. It has a limited time to be fragrant, and, and, and yet it's so costly. So costliness and wastefulness are often part of sacrifice because that sacrifice comes from the heart which counts as nothing the things of the earth and as everything the things of God. Um, and so Paul says, I'm being poured out like a drink offering. Poured out, he uses the word spend, actually. We, we get the English word spend from this. He's, he's expended. He, he is spent, sorry. He is spent, not expended. He is, he is spent on the, uh, like a drink offering, on the sacrifice and service coming from their faith. Now, the reason I say that this is a crossover is that the Philippians, as largely Gentiles, would be used to the idea of a libation. So when you drink wine or strong drink, you pour a bit in the hearth and it quickly disappears. No animal can lap it up because it doesn't, it doesn't last long enough to form a pool. It's just soaked away in either the straw or the dirt of the, of the floor. It, in other words, it's, it's wasted and it's costly. And it comes from, uh, it, it, it comes from a, a different religious source. And in a way here, I wonder if Paul is coming around to communicating with Gentiles, just as he could communicate with Jews, and often they didn't like what he said. Now he's communicating with Gentiles, and there is a crossover, a sense of, yeah, we, we, under, we understand the idea of this sacrifice, this libation. Well, all of that to say, that in actual fact, Paul is actually coming back to this thought. And this thought runs through and into the service and the faith of the Philippians. And it's this, that Jesus, being in the very form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but took on the form of a servant and became obedient even to death, death on a cross. There is the costly sacrifice. And Paul now is saying that he, as a worshipper of Jesus, as a follower of Jesus, as a lover of Jesus, he too is being poured out like a costly sacrifice. But what is it? It's a costly sacrifice on the service coming from the faith of the Philippians. And guess what? They too, in their worship, in their service of God, well, they're being poured out as well, aren't they? Because you can't help thinking that the apple never falls far from the tree, that the sun always looks or seems or behaves like the father and there is this 
utter sense to Paul that to follow Jesus is to become like him. And he's going to explain this even more later. He's going to say to become like him, even in death. And this is the standard that he's setting for the Philippians. Don't grumble. Don't dispute with one another. I am being poured out for you as a sacrifice, willingly, boastingly, happily to, 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 to go through this, to count uh, living and dying Christ. Because that's the standard that I expect from you. And you too should be glad and rejoice with me. May God bless our service of him at this time. And may he bring us to a greater understanding of his, of what it is to be poured out as he was and to embrace this as we look to follow him. In Jesus' name, amen.